We have been talking about spiritual warfare, and, and during the month of July, we are talking about the ways in which Satan seeks to sabotage relationships. During the month of August, we will talk about the war within, the intrapersonal war. But now we're talking about the interpersonal war and the ways in which he will seek to disrupt our relationships with one another. Now, we spent the first two weeks of July talking about the two basic relationships that are so important to us personally and so important to our culture, and that is marriage and the family. Um, if he can take apart those relationships, he can not only destroy us personally and divert our attention from the Lord God, but he will also destroy our culture and our civilization. He's making a pretty good try at it right now. He's not going to get. He's not going to succeed, though. We know that we've read the end of the book, haven't we? We know. We know what the end is. This relationship that I'm about to talk to you about today is, although it's secondary. Um, we approach it from a couple of different angles. First of all, I want to tell you that he's been fairly successful at this particular relationship, destroying this particular relationship, or not letting it get going. And it is second only to the destruction of marriage and the family, and that is the relationship that Christians have between each other for the strengthening and encouraging of one another's faith. Let me tell you how successful, or show you how successful he's been up to this time. Don't need to see a raise, uh, uh, no, Don't need you to raise your hand, but I need you to think to yourself: Who is my spiritual mentor? Can I picture his face? Who knows me personally, and encourages and strengthens my faith personally? Who is that individual? Secondly, to whom am I a spiritual mentor? Who is my student in the faith? Now, I'm not a gambling man, but if I were, I would venture to bet that a good number of you could not picture anyone in either of those roles right now. Now, let me read to you from... <laughs> Ron did it. <laughs> this is cute. Up here, they have all the, the little crosses for the, for the uh, uh, kids. And I said, Ron, I don't want a cross, I want a star. And so he put the star of David right here. <laughs> I asked for it. This is a passage about the Apostle Paul. It goes to the church at Thessalonica. Now, the church of Thessalonica was established by Paul and Silas and Timothy on a second missionary journey. By Paul on a second missionary journey. You can read about it in Acts 17. He was only there, some say a few weeks, some say a few months, but a very short period of time in order to launch a church in this very significant city. And Paul was trying to get back to them in order to mentor them in the faith. And he is very upset that he can't get back to them. And I will tell you why right after I read the passage to you. But we, brethren, having been bereft of you, and the, the, the technical term there is the Greek word from which we get the word orphan. Having been orphaned from you. Some of your versions say bereaved of you, but I want you to know that this is more than an ecclesiastical separation. This is a separation of family. We are orphaned from you. 
The Bible says, for a short while, in person, not in spirit, we're all the more eager to see, with great desire, to see your face. For we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, more than once. Yet Satan thwarted us. Now again, let me tell you, the Greek word here is a military image. And the military image is one of blowing up a bridge to stop an advancing enemy. Um, this is typical military tactic. Most people have used it. You, you know that in the Second World War, uh, they used the scorched earth policy. When they were being defeated, the, the thing that they did was not give the enemy any more ground, but try to starve him to death. Try to separate him from those who could be conquered. Now, let me give you the correct image here. When we are Christians unto ourselves, we are lost to the kingdom of hell. But we do not necessarily make advances into the kingdom of darkness until we begin to encourage one another and advance one another spiritually. Then we make incursions into the kingdom of darkness. And so what Satan is doing is he's trying to hinder those relationships by which we are encouraged spiritually. And he's blowing up the roads between us and he's blowing up the bridges between us. He's taking the scorched earth tactic. He's trying everything he can do to discourage us from advancing with one another spiritually into his territory. So it says, Satan thwarted or hindered us. For who is our joy? I'm sorry, who is our hope or joy or exultation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and our joy. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. Now let me give just a, a short scriptural synopsis of the spectrum that we're seeing here. When we are born, we're born into a world and are ourselves by nature children of uh, wrath. We are, um, uh, what's, what's, what's the word, the D word I'm looking for? D word. No, disobedient, uh, 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 radical and pervasive depravity. Thanks, Ron. Fresh from seminary, Ron comes up with it. All right, Ron. (laughs) Radical and pervasive, some would say total depravity. That's how we're born, all right? There, there is no way that we can sink, seek God. And, and Satan wants to keep us right there. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, it says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Those are the people who are entombed in this radical and pervasive depravity. In whose case the God of this world. Who's that? It's Satan, isn't it? has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Okay, so 
the first line of defense is to blind the minds and to keep them in their own crowd. Now, for some who have been called to a relationship with God, that doesn't work anymore. And they have transferred crowds. You read about that in Ephesians 2, 2 and 3 where it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. All right? Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. But you skip down to verse 19, and a radical transformation has happened. We are with a whole new group of people. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens after you have met Christ, and He is a part of your life. He is all of your life. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Now, does Satan quit when we get with other Christians? No, that's when he begins. That's when he really goes for it. And we can see that when Paul wrote the church of Galatia, where where they were... They were, at first, free in Christ. I mean, they, they'd learned what it was to have a relationship in Christ and not do all of the laws in order to make themselves holy. But then, as they progressed, Satan began to put barriers between them and their relationship, their personal relationship with God. And look what Paul says to him In the, third, or in the fifth chapter, he writes this in verse 7. You were running well. You, you really had, I mean, you were going on the right car. You were running well. Who hindered, there's that word again, who hindered you from obeying the truth? Now, who's the truth? Jesus is the truth, isn't he? There's not a bunch of rules and regulations. Gee, I am the way, the truth, and the light, right? Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. You understand what's happening? Satan is doing everything he can to keep us isolated from one another. Not for all relationships. Some relationships he likes to nurture because we are of no spiritual good to one another. But to those relationships who can encroach into his territory, those who encourage faith, those relationships who build up belief, Now, let me give you three reasons why Satan does this. And during these reasons, I want you to think of other situations that I am not naming. And let me tell you that it it does not really take much to see how well Satan has done this. I'm, I'm a part of a group right now who is trying in future years to get all of the churches in Orlando to cooperate one another with one another so that we can stand and, and have a, uh, a Christian voice and a Christian impact and feed the hungry and clothe the naked and home, house the homeless and, and, and going to churches and saying, boy, this would, this would really be great, wouldn't it, if we could all work together. It's like pulling teeth. Why? It's not because they're bad people. It's not because they don't believe in the Lord. It's the fact that they, we've been isolated from one another. We've been cut off from one another. Just like Paul was afraid that, church, that the church of Thessalonica would get. It's not bad to be able to operate on your own. But there's a very natural system 
where what where where once something was open it becomes closed. Now let me just let me give you a general lesson on systems here. All systems are like this. All systems need boundaries because the more we can become independent, the more sophisticated we can become in answering our own needs and supplying our own fuels, the more efficient we are. So therefore, whether it's with people or with churches or with uh, biology or with physics or whatever, systems tend to become closed as they Evolve, and I use that as a generic term. As they evolve, as they become more sophisticated, they become more closed. But therein lies a problem. Because the more you can depend only on yourself, even though you're more efficient and more consistent, the less regulatable you are. And the more you have reached the place where you will deteriorate. Because only open systems are not subject to entropy. Entropy being that which slowly dissolves and regresses into chaos. If you are a closed system, you will regress into chaos. But only if you import, if you, if you have the capacity to import order from somewhere else, will you have something enough to fight the natural entropy that comes with a closed system. Therefore, we must remain open. But what happens? What happens is this. We want so much to be non-dependent that we begin to believe that the real power lies within us. By the way, this is the calling card of the New Age movement. This is the calling card of practically every cult. Because practically every cult will either say to you, you are a God within yourself, or you can be like God. All right? Only a true faith will say to you, you are insufficient. You need God from the outside in. The answer is not within. There is nothing within. The answer is up there. To be openly poured into your life. Therefore, we're talking about a system by which Satan seeks to make us basically autistic. Autistic. You know churches that become ecclesiastically autistic. I mean, now there are different kinds of autism. There are some where you just uh, have no real connection with the outside world. And there are some that where you have no real connection with the outside world, you're still very talented. Those are called savants, autistic savants. Savant is a French word uh, that comes from the, from the Latin word that means to know. You can be encapsulated within yourself and still be very smart. You, you, those of you who saw the movie Rain Man, that was about an autistic savant person who had incredible gifts uh, mathematically. I read a, a, a newsletter or a newspaper article a couple of days ago about a, a, an autistically savant person who had incredible musical talent. But he was still autistic. The same thing happens with churches. 
There are churches who have incredible teaching or incredible music programs or incredible fellowship or incredible discipleship or incredible this or incredible that, but they have nothing to do with anybody around them. And very little, I mean, the Holy Spirit could die and they'd never know it. Because they haven't imported anything into that year, that church, including God, in a long, long time. Because they have become so efficient in their own system. See? People are like that. I remember going to, uh, to a concert. Now this was not a Dallas home concert. But it was, it was a concert of a Christian singer who I will not name, but I will simply make fun of. No, I just... <laughs> But this was a guy who sang the, home, the, the song that Dallas Home is known for, and that's uh, I'll Rise Again. And this, for those of you who know that song, it's a powerful song. You know, go ahead, bury me, and pretty soon you'll see that I'll rise again. It's about, you know, Jesus singing it. It's a powerful song, and you relive the scripture. I mean, but this guy had sung it way too many times way too many times and had begun to give in to the temptation that it was his own talent and his own style that made the song come alive and I can remember him walking, <laughs> swaggering up to the microphone saying, thank you, thank you very much ladies and gentlemen get it Tony and Tony hit this thing with he said, go ahead, bury me. And pretty soon, yeah, yeah, you will say, ho, that I'll rise again. I'm going, oh, good heavens. You know? It was, yeah. It was excruciating. And you, and you tried to picture this guy when he started out. You tried to picture him on his face before God saying, God, I'm not much, but just use me. Just use me. Fill me. Because I realize that nothing I do on my own will ever last. Only what your spirit does will last. But somehow, Satan was able to enclose him on himself. And somehow, he was able to believe, as conveyed by his style, that it was his voice that was the power, not the message. Singers can do that. Preachers very easily come along with that same assumption. Churches come along with that same assumption. Therefore, first reason. You, you thought we were on three, didn't you? I will end up with one. The first reason is so that Satan can close the systems. Paul knew enough to know that if the church at Thessalonica was left alone, without outside input, that it would go the way of every closed system. It would deteriorate. Secondly, Satan desires with all of his heart to break the strongest model he has for healthy theology. The model of mentor, the model of spiritual encouragement for someone else, is the model of God himself. It's how God made us. I remember when I was uh, small, um, ah, when I was younger, 
hate that when I do that. When I was little, when I was small. He's still little. He's still small. When I was younger, i got to learn to say that. I had a friend down the street. His name was Blakesley. Blakesley Teach. I could try to call him Blake, but his mother wouldn't hear it. Blakesley. And he was, a, he was a neat guy. I mean, I liked hanging around him. He was a nice, nice kid. He was kind of a little uh, wimpy. Uh, well, I don't know how to describe it. He was the whitest kid I'd ever seen in my life. White. <laughs> I mean, when we didn't have much to do, Blake took his shirt off and we counted the veins in his chest. I mean, the pale, delicate, but a neat kid. Okay. So I'd go down to his house every morning for school, pick him up. We'd ride to school together on our bicycles. And Blakesley's mother would stand out and hand him his lunch, you know, pinch his cheek. And he'd ride off and he'd, she'd say, Now, Blakesley, be good today. And Blakesley'd go, I'll try. <laughs> and I can remember riding down the street. And I was just basically your booger head at the time. <laughs> and I was just trying to be ornery, you know. And just, you know, it just kind of bugs you when you're, when you're riding with somebody that good. I mean, wickedness hates goodness. And I was wicked and he was good and I hated it. And I, so I said, Blakesley, don't you ever get tired of being good all the time? Well, Blakesley said, well, yeah, I do. As a matter of fact, I said, good. <laughs> I said, well, that, now you're normal, see. I said, listen, I can kind of help you out with that. Meaning help you out of that. And Blasey looked at me and he said, Hunter, you saw my mom, didn't you? I said, yeah, I see her every morning. He said, yeah, but did you see how she looked at me, how she looks at me every morning? I said, yeah. He said, I could break her heart. I would not do that for the world. I was defeated. I mean, I wasn't so low that I would cause a guy to break his mother's heart. <laughs> well, see, that is the healthiest kind of theology and the highest point of motivation that we can have to live a Christian life. To live it out of a relationship that is so important to us that we wouldn't grieve them for the world. Remember God in the garden after Satan had done his work? God came looking for Adam and said, Adam, Genesis 3.9, Adam, where are you? Now, most of us read that passage all wrong. God came walking in the garden in the cool of the day and said, Adam, where are you? That's how we read that, don't we? Now, look at the character of God character of God was Adam I miss you where are you see and when you've discovered that character of the all sufficient God who desires you anyway then you've discovered the nature of who Jesus is and the nature of who God is and you wouldn't grieve him for the world the Bible says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Oh, I wouldn't for the world, because I know him. I used to work in a factory of a guy, and I worked with a couple of guys on, on your way through college. What gets you through college? 
You have 42, 11 jobs that you would never do for the world. And that's what gets you through. Well, I've had, I had all kinds of those jobs. And one was a factory job, and I worked alongside two guys, both of whom could not say a sentence without at least three-quarters of that sentence being cuss words. I mean, they couldn't do it. Well, you get used to it. I mean, you, that's just part of the language, and they don't mean anything by it, and they just go on. And go. Well, one guy went to a revival, got saved, came back the next week, could hardly talk. <laughs> They'd taken away his vocabulary. I mean, he, you know... And he'd, he'd, he'd apologize. He'd say, oh, Dan, oh, I'm sorry, oh, hell, oh, I'm, I'm t-. You know, just kept apologizing as he went along. I mean, you tried, you tried to pick out the clean words, you know, because he couldn't. But he was, he was trying, you know, his very best to have the Lord clean up his tongue. And he was doing a good job. But his co-worker wasn't trying at all. And I could see this guy's face flush Red every time he used God's name in vain. Now, he could take the rest of it. But you know and I know how that is when you're around somebody and they're taking the Lord's name in vain. And finally, I went to him. You know, he, he, was, just, he was ready to just cream him. You know, lose it all. And I went to him. I said, Marvin, you, you cuss like that for years. Now, where do you get off all of a sudden within a week being holier than thou? And Marvin looked at me and said, I'm not trying to be holier than now. But I know the guy he's talking about now. I love the guy he's talking about now. And it hurts me personally now. See? There's a difference. That's the highest motivation there is. So therefore, remember in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18, the highest motivation was that God reconciled the world to what? Himself. Higher standard of living? No. I mean, it is. But that's not why he did it. And that's not the power. There are a lot of people. There are a lot of reasons that people get their life straight. Some people get their life straight just because they like to be good. And they like to be approved of. Some people get their life straight because they're sick of what sin is doing to them. It's too painful and they don't want to go through it anymore. Some people get their life straight because it's profitable. I had a guy call me up a couple of weeks ago. And said, you know what? I'm a Christian businessman. My profits have been lousy recently. I think it's because I'm sinning. i got to get straight. The end of the sentence was, so that I can make more money. Well, it may happen, but that's not the highest desire, not the highest reason to have a relationship with the Lord. As a matter of fact, I doubt if it will happen, if it happens only for that reason. But yet, that is a very real reason why people become Christians. So I can be a success. But the only one that sticks is by having a spiritual mentor that even transfers to God that is one of a personal loyalty and love. That's why Satan wants to get in the way of any relationship that could be encouraging and strengthening spiritually. That's why He wants us to keep as far apart as possible because if we do, we will harden our hearts eventually and operate independently. Uh, uh, Hebrews 3, 13 and 15 says this. Encourage one another day after day, as long as it still is called today, 
lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see the alternative? We either encourage one another or we're hardened. Today, if you hear his voice, the Bible says, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me. One more reason. He not only does it to stunt the growth of those who could learn, he does it because he knows those of us who are hot after God need to have relationships with people who will learn from us, not for their sake, but for our sake. You are our hope, our joy, our exultation. Who is our hope and joy? Is it not you? In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says, you're our letter of recommendation. You're the ones that help us know that we're alive in Christ. Satan does this. He separates mentors from students, not just to stunt the students, but to drain the mentors. To say to the mentors, your life doesn't count. To subtract from the mentors the joy of seeing someone else grow in Christ because it is so important for people to do that. And to keep them from the secret that the way you grow in Christ is to teach. Paul says in his, in his letter to Romans in, in 2.21, when you teach, do you not also teach yourself? That's the way it works. You know, it's the most curious thing to me in the world for people to say, no, I can't, te- I can't uh, uh, teach Sunday school because I don't know enough. It's exactly, exactly what Satan wants you to think. What he doesn't want you to discover is that the way you know enough is to teach Sunday school. That is how you grow. I had a gal in my first church. Her name was Mildred McGar. This was just a little tiny church. She was so cute. She looked like Yoda. You ever, you ever see that movie? Uh, whatever that thing was. Just a little bitty, just a cute. She had Coke bottle glasses that went up in, a, in the thing like that thing with rhinestones on it, you know. She was so cute. She had a horrible life. Um, husband was an alcoholic and took every money, every bit of money she could earn and spent it on booze and beat her and so on and so forth. Kids were rebellious. They were the talk of the town. Uh, horrible life. But here's this little faithful woman who late in life came to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was her rock. And though a mother forsake her child, Psalm 27:10, we just we just sang that. God won't forsake her. I mean, she knew it. So in this little church, we didn't have very many kids. That the average age of my first church that I pastored alone was probably 97 and a half. <laughs> I mean, it was. I mean, the church didn't empty out for three hours, not because people were standing and talking, but because they kept going toward the exit, and they couldn't <laughs> quite get there. And, and the thing was built on a ramp, so you had to go up to go up. Anyhow, was not a pretty sight. But we had a few kids, few kids, and Mildred McGar was the nursery attendant. She loved those kids, and every week she'd bring in little Bible verses that she she now these are one and two year old kids they don't know anything about Bible I mean they just try to eat them and stuff they don't know anything about that stuff 
And she'd bring him, and she'd hold him up, and she'd rock him, and she'd sing Bible stories, and she'd tell him Bible stories, and she'd she'd uh, uh, um, uh, read stories about Joshua and Moses and all these people. They couldn't understand her for beans. So one day I was taking her home. She was uh, um, she didn't have a car. Husband had sold it, drank it, and. Uh, so she didn't have a ride, so Beck and I usually took her home. You know, in a smaller church, a preacher does everything, I mean, taxi service and everything. So I was taking her home, and it was great because I love Mildred, and I'd love to get to talk to her. And I said, Mildred, bless your heart for watching those kids. That is so neat. And it is so evident to me that you prepare. I mean, she literally prepared every week to do her nursery thing. I said, it is so neat that you prepare every week for those kids. And you come in with a story, and you come in with songs, and you come in with an activity that will teach them. And you come in with this, and you come in. But Mildred, Mildred, you don't have to do that. They can't understand what you're saying. Relax. Just come in and enjoy them. She looked at me, and she said, well, now, all due respect, Reverend. And anytime anybody says, all due respect, Reverend, you know you're in a deep weed patch. <laughs> she said, Reverend, that's the way I love them. They are my hope during the week. That's what keeps me going all week long. And Reverend, I don't care whether they understand what I'm saying or not. I need somebody to tell what I believe. It's the only place I can do it. You see what Satan was, was doing to the church at Thessalonica was, was stunting Paul, frustrating Paul, because Paul is the one who needed to tell somebody what he believed and what he knew. So Satan will always try to keep us away from spiritual mentors as well as from being spiritual mentors. Now, two things and then I'll quit. Number one, I want us to work this week on the spiritual mentoring process. I mean, if this scares Satan this bad, there must be something to it, right? So let's just frustrate the daylights out of him. Let's begin to think in terms of how I can build someone else up in their faith. Knowing that there are going to be roadblocks. You know, David Livingston was in the heart of Africa when he received a note from a mission society in England. And the note said this, Tell us where there is a good road to you and we will send help. And he wrote back to them. Took months and months to get there. And the return note essentially said this, I don't need the kind of help that only comes with a road. I need the kind that will get to me no matter what. Well, when Satan is blowing up the paths that we thought we had between us and our children or us and our friends or us and our workmates, you've you got to remember they need the spiritual encouragement or the spiritual deposit that we can make in their lives whether or not there's a natural road. They need it. And secondly, we need to remember, we need to remember that for all of the efforts we put forth in this world, there's only one kind of effort that's going to last forever. 1 Corinthians 3 says very clearly, everything we do that is of the world is going to be burned up. Only what we do that has eternal significance will last. 
There was a guy who knew that, by the way. After he retired, I know, I know it's late, but this, there's one more story, and then I'll quit. That after he, after he um, um, retired, he was a, a layman in uh, Indianapolis, Sunday school person, loved the Lord, you know. And there was a, uh, there was a, he got word of a student, let me see if I can remember this correctly, got word of a student who was in a boarding house who would not come to Christ because he had some real intellectual problems. And it's okay to have intellectual problems. But this prominent layperson decided to take it upon himself to go over to that boarding house and stay with that kid and answer every intellectual objection that that kid had to the gospel. And he did exactly that. For hours he stayed with that kid, and one after another he gave what was a reasonable answer to clear away the path so that that kid with integrity could kneel down and accept Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Now, that's a great story. But where do you hear who the retiree was? His name was Benjamin Harrison. He was the President of the United States. And after he had retired from power, he learned what power really was. We need to remember that we exercise all kinds of power in our relationships. But the only kind that counts is the kind that can lead people to the Lord that has eternal significance. It's the only kind that counts. Now pray with me. I told you I'd quit and I will. God, thank you. Thank you that you have brought us the challenge to become spiritual mentors and to be mentored spiritually. Satan has been so successful in this area that we do not have natural relationships built up. But Lord, we are glad that we don't have a whole church program for this. And, we, and it's not just a thing where we say, well, I'll go to such and such. We're glad that you are starting fresh with us with a burden to hear faith from someone who knows and to say faith to someone who may not know it completely. Put those people on our hearts. As we go from week to week, live from day to day, give us an inkling a drawnness to those people to whom we will mentor spiritually so that no matter how many hindrances, no matter how many blown up roads or broken bridges, the help will get where it needs to go. Even as Paul sent Timothy, send us in some way to those who need your input. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.